Hey everyone, we're back with another episode of the Utility Strategy Podcast. And today we're going to have a very interesting conversation, an unfiltered one, uh, about the risk of, sub- of subsurface utilities from the perspective of the different stakeholders uh, involved in infrastructure projects. Uh, so without further ado, uh, Sid Jones, how, uh, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. Thank you, David, for having me. Yeah, sure. So the, give us, uh, give uh, our audience some context. Uh, who are you? What are you up to? What is your company? Well, um, again, my name is Sid Jones. I'm a estimating consultant, and uh, my career entails about 28 years, up to 28 years, uh, and counting. Uh, essentially just helping clients with uh, water, wastewater utility estimating, heavy civil, highway transportation, uh, those types of things, basically infrastructure. Uh, started out in the water, wastewater industry and then uh, quickly dovetailed into the transportation industry, both in um, California and um, in Arizona in those areas. And uh, over a period of time, it just, kind of shifted to more of a, a national scale where I uh, worked corporate for about a good chunk of 25 years. And then five years ago in 2017, decided that I would do something on my own and figured that uh, I would be, my resources and my talents would be better used uh, if I did this independently and uh, facilitate a lot of the clients that I have, I, used to work for so facilitate their needs and, and augment their estimating uh, resources and their departments that that exist that currently exist and uh, the great thing about the industry today is we've got a labor shortage and that includes in management as well so there's definitely some um, uh, security job security and uh, you know my my talents have, have been you know, out there to for other clients to, to look at from from a global standpoint, from a national standpoint, from a state and local standpoint. So that's essentially what I do. Decided to do estimating on my own and and uh, keep my relationships and my networking going. And and uh, currently, I've got over half a dozen clients that I regularly work for. And uh, I'm sure that we'll uh, have an opportunity to talk a little bit about some of their. Uh, some of their instances that they get into that, that they would give me a call and I could help them out. Yeah. Uh, give us, uh, give us some, uh, some perspective. What is, uh, like when you are approached by, uh, by a client, by a customer and they say, Hey, we've got this, uh, this project going on. We've got this, uh, uh, this highway, this, uh, this pipeline. What, uh, what does that look like? You go into a project, what are you looking for? Uh, which risks, are you uh, planning to take on and how do you mitigate them? Well, typically, you know, most of the work that I get involved in is going to be a competitive bid so that you've got a lot of public works agencies that are letting out plans and projects, whether it's through TxDOT or Caltrans or, um, you know, a multitude of, of local MUD districts that they'll publicly advertise on, um, you know, certain websites and, and also they'll have their own website that you can kind of tap into and kind of monitor and, and um, you know, track a lot of the jobs that a lot of these agencies are letting out. And then yeah. what will happen, there'll be, a, there'll be an intersection between the clients that I have that are general contractors. They'll be looking at jobs that I'm kind of tracking and then I'll, I might get a phone call that says, hey, we're going to need some help on uh, such and such job and are you familiar with it? Can you give us a hand with X, Y, and Z, whether it's utilities or whether it's roadway, dirt, bridges, whatever the case may be. So I'll, I'll get a call out of the blue or I'll, I'll basically be networking with clients and, and ask them ahead of time, hey, you guys looking at, you know, a monthly letting for TxDOT, for example. Oh, yeah, we are. Well, you guys need any help. Sure. Okay. Well, um, I'll take on utilities if you want. Okay. Or something else. They may say, We've got the utilities covered. We need an earthwork takeoff, or um, you know, we, we need help with the bridges, or we've got a wastewater treatment plant that nobody in our office can estimate. Can you help us out with that? We want to expand our markets, that type of thing. So, um, a lot of it's cold calling. A lot of it is just networking. Uh, so I, I take a little bit of both. It's relatively fifty-fifty. Yeah. 
I think that uh, what's uh, really special about the, the industry is that a lot is uh, based on trust. A lot of the relationships are based on uh, trust and knowing uh, knowing who you can trust for which uh, for which job. And we're seeing, I think, when we talk to our customers and when we talk to our friends in the industry, that's definitely a, a meaningful element of uh, doing business in the industry. Uh, but but uh, going back to uh, to your work, when you take on a project, I think one of the the challenges challenges are around uh, subsurface utilities. It, there is it. There's just so much so much missing information. And how does an estimator go into a job like that with a lack of a lack of data, a lack of information? Like you don't always know what you what you're up against. You never have the full scoop. And how do you how do you estimate that? How do you quantify that challenge? Well, you know, certainly when you're dealing with um, you know something that's a competitive bid, which is design, bid, build, or a hard bid, a lot of the documentation has been provided, and there's you know I can't say that all the questions have been answered. I mean, that's kind of how you dovetail into change orders when you do get a job, or you can speculate change orders forecast them and maybe integrate those into your bid as part of your risk register. Are you going to have some windfalls? Are you going to have some downfalls? How does that how does that look in the bottom line when you're closing out a bid? You know, design, design build work, you know, you'll have a lot of uh, situations, there'll be a lack of data. So those things, you're really relying on your expertise, your, your, um, your experience to know that, you know, I've seen I've seen tons of uh, utility lines put in over the years. Okay, I, I typically will know if the information's not given, you know, what I'm looking at. Um, whatever whatever I can deduce from uh, an existing, say for example, uh, an existing uh, manhole lid, um, I, we can do some field re research and find out what the inverts are and kind of extrapolate information that's below ground that we might need uh, to put together a, a complete bid on a design bid uh, project. Now, when it comes to bid build or, or hard bid work, that information's pretty much given in completion by about 95% or more. And when there's not information that, that's needed, those are it's really easy to connect the dots when we're talking about a text.job or a Caltrans job or something that's being let out in the public works. They've done their homework. They've done a lot of right-of-way acquisition. They've got as-builts that they're working with. They've got... Um, utility information that uh, either comes from DigAlert or um, USA service or, or those types of things when it as it pertains to utilities the above grade stuff you know that that stuff you can you can visualize as well if it's not given because if you try to find out what it's kind of a puzzle you find out what's given to you and if there is a gap that you've got to fill it's not too hard they usually give you a plethora of information that you can you can fill in those gaps design build, it, it takes a little bit more, but you know the, the people I work with, a lot of the um, a lot of the resources, a lot of the estimators that I work with in larger co uh, corporations, you know they they've been doing this for years, like myself. So we can pretty much we, we've seen it before. We we know how to get from point A to point B and and fill in those gaps. But you're right, there is there is a challenge, and I think that whenever somebody calls me and, and hires you know Jones Industrial Group and and our staff. You know, we know enough about it. We've worked with a lot of these people that they trust us. They know our work, and they know that we can uh, we can extrapolate that information. That we're not just making things up. And and at the end of the day, it, it's got to make sense because you're going to have a lot of eyes on the on a project, even on a pre-construction side. So there's a, there's checks and balances where you know if you don't know what you're doing, they'll they'll find out immediately. So uh, that's that's kind of in a nutshell how we would we'd proceed on the on the front end. What the, you know, I think though that we have a very experienced industry and I think we have a lot of uh, uh, young engineers coming into the industry and they don't have, they don't have that experience. And yet because of the labor shortage, they are tasked with these riskful uh, jobs to be done, if that makes sense. And I'm wondering how these big firms are taking on this um, well, 
you know, obviously when you have somebody coming from college and they're new, uh, they're, they're not just going to let them take the lead on a project, whether it's from the design standpoint or from an operation standpoint. They'll have people come alongside them and they're very seasoned and they'll kind of cut their teeth along with, you know, somebody that's a, a mentor to, you know, get the information that's going to be viable. The owners that are hiring engineers or hiring contractors to do this work, especially on the design build side, they're not, they're doing their homework too. They're not just going to let you, you know, have a clean slate and a, and a blank checkbook and just come in and do anything you want to do. So there's, there's definitely, there's a changing of the guard, but I think that uh, the ones who are up and coming, they're learning quickly. They're having to expedite that learning curve. And uh, I think that uh, with the older staff that that's here now, that's going to be retiring soon, they're they're definitely trying to segue so that some of these young engineers can, you know, handle it and run with the ball and and not leave a lot of these owners hanging. Because again, they'll know immediately, and because you can draw a pretty picture, you know, a lot of engineers they uh, back in the day they just love to draw these these pictures and these pretty pictures, but they the the idea that you could actually go and build that. Those two things were, it seemed like there was an abyss between them in the past. Now I think that they're starting to integrate more of the common sense out in the field. So a lot of these engineers, send them out in the field, let them see this work being performed so that when they go back into the design room and start working on it in two dimensions, when they're just, you know, throwing, throwing a bunch of lines on paper, uh, it'll make more sense because you can, you can draw something, but the fact that can it be built or not? You know that that's really what the uh, what the owner is looking for because you're wasting the owner's time, especially when it be, when it comes to billable hours and it's not a lump sum. Uh, yeah. They they definitely want you to be concise in your approach and and uh, and and get results and get answers quickly. Yeah, uh, t talk to us a bit more about that. Like, what is a like, especially in these heavy civil projects and design build projects? What uh what is the owner looking for? Like what, what are they expecting from the from the from the contract that was taken on these are normally large projects well the the owner you know they're look they're hiring engineers because you know it used to be that a lot of these owners whether it's Textdot or Caltrans or some of these other local municipalities you know they have their own in-house engineering firms and right now resources are getting thin because a lot of people are retiring uh, the newer engineers aren't ready yet, and they don't have the um, they don't have the season behind them to to really deliver like an owner expects. So what they have to do is they have to go out and they'll hire these large engineering firms, and they'll use their staff that's that's experienced, kind of like the way they would hire me as a consultant. So that um, if they're lacking internally with their own resources, they they lean on other engineering firms to um, to provide. You know the integrity of the project and to do it within a budget uh you know when you have an in-house engineer uh what from your owner from that standpoint and the problem in the past is you can you can just milk the clock and you know there's a lot of money you can spend and, and bleed through and not getting any results i think the owner's looking for engineering firms that can deliver and if it's a lump sum they have to deliver regardless they have a deadline yeah. so they're trying to save money because you're trying to protect the taxpayer interest, even when it's a design build. Uh, you know, typically a competitive bid, you're definitely it's it's taxpayer dollars. Design builds, you start it's taxpayer money, but you start getting into some of these other entities where it can be private money and uh, money that's allocated for something else that's not directly going to hit the taxpayer. But owners again are are looking to augment their resources and get results quickly. Same thing on the contracting end. Um, you know, the owner's looking to start a relationship with the contractors so that, number one, they're going to deliver. And number two, they're going to do it in a timely manner where they're not just going to camp out on a job site, milk the project, get paid for it. You know, because it, it's really, bottom line is it's about the money. And if you can save and, and keep your budgets and maintain your budgets, that's what it's all about. It doesn't matter if it's from the owner's standpoint, designer standpoint, or a contractor standpoint. I mean, it, it's really the bottom line dollar. And I think that's why you're starting to see these different relationships outside of just trying to do it in-house because I think that there's been a lot of abuse 
And uh, that's why these, these new models of, of doing business are starting to pop up and gain a lot of traction. Yeah. I think, though, when you look at it from the, uh, from the contractor side or that, like, we're hearing numbers like 5%, 7% margins for a, for a project. And it's kind of become uh, very difficult for uh, contractors to build an organization and to build a professional organization with these types of numbers. And there's like, there's like a battle between these two, uh, these two stakeholders. Yeah. I mean, for sure, the, uh, the, the margins, the profit margins, especially for public works projects, uh, bid build, I mean, razor thin, it doesn't matter if you're doing work in California or Texas or North Carolina or Utah or Colorado. I mean, typically, for in Texas, for example, I mean, it's a slugfest. If you can make, you can make five percent, and bid your work at five percent, you're doing well. Now, design builds attractive because you can, you know, you can make anywhere from five percent to twenty five percent. Just depends yeah. on how the flow of the project goes. But uh, yeah, competitive bid. I mean, it's it's good for the owner because they definitely want a lot of participation. You know, you don't want to handpick. Um, certain contractors to do the work. I know that uh, in some states like Texas, it's a good old boy network. And they leave things open-ended where the owner can pretty much pick who they want to do the job, even in a competitive bid. Yeah. And that's fine. I mean, because you have to read the specs. You have to know what you're getting yourself into. I mean, that's why they hire me, because they know that, hey, should we even bid this job for this particular agency? Because can we get in? Do they know us? Are they going to – you can get nine bidders that are going to look at a job but they're really seriously only going to look at one or two because the owner knows them. Now, how do you get that experience? You know, there's a lot of turnover in construction. So you may have, you may have a good friend that works for company X one day and, you know, the next day or two years later, he's working for company Y that never could get their foot in the door with, with an agency in, in Texas. But because the owner of some utility uh, mud district knows this guy from company Y, all of a sudden they're a player. So there's there's a lot of relationships. And again, states do matter. Um, Caltrans, for example, or California across the board, they're very good about competitive bid. And, and if, you, you know, if you've got a backhoe and a couple guys and a, and a license that's legit with no liens against it, you can jump in. As long as you're bonded, you can jump in and, and get in the fray. You will be low bidder. Uh, Texas, for example, you can jump in and, and it may take you a long time to get a gig. I have small clients in Texas that it took them two years to get on board to get their first job. Wow. So, I mean, I've tried personally in Texas to do it. And it's not what you know, it's who you know. And Texas isn't the only state. There's other states in the union that, uh, you know, that are that way. And, um, you know, hopefully I'm answering your question, but... <laughs> I almost feel like I'm going off on a tangent because uh, a lot of personal stories I could tell about, um, you know, the ins and outs of working in different states. And, you know, in California, you're looking at, at unions you have to deal with. Uh, right to work states like uh, Texas and parts of Arizona. A lot different, a lot different environment, a lot different atmosphere. So the delivery methods have a lot to do with uh, your success in different states as well. You know, Florida, for example, when you bid work in Florida, they have a lot of reciprocity rules where from county to county, depending on where the job site's at, if, you're, if your corporate headquarters are located in an adjacent county that touches it, you know, you can have different bid preferences and things of that nature. That's another can of worms because in the, in the uh, bid build, uh, competitive bid market, there are certain states that if you're not, you know, settled in and know the rules, you're just wasting your time. Florida is very mafioso. I mean, it's it's definitely you. You got to know what you're doing. You got to know how the rules of engagement work. Um, Texas, on the other hand, just you know what, jump in, see what happens. Uh, yeah. California, it's it's highly regulated. You 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 can jump in, and they're they're going to list you, but you better be able to deliver. So yeah. it's it's fun with the variety of, of different clients that I have all over the country whenever you're bidding a job in a certain state, you know, getting down to right down to sales tax, when you bid work in um, South Carolina and North Carolina, when you're do, doing water, wastewater work, 
if it touches water, it's a different tax rate, or if it's, it's a different allocation on your permanent materials versus your consumable. When you go into Washington State, their tax codes and their tax structure is, is really messed up. It's, it's very confusing. It's hard to bid work in Washington State. So it's, uh, it's kind of fun because it is a puzzle depending on where the job's going to be bid at, where it's going to be led at, and um, you know who your client is and who the owner is. So different rules of engagement. And I think that owners and, and contractors are looking for the right teams to put these things together that are familiar with the state that they're bidding in, the, uh, the municipality, um, you know, the owner, the engineer. All of these things have everything to do whether or not you're going to enter into trying to even bid a project, let alone capture it and go out and perform the work. Yeah. Do you think that there's an element of... Uh uh consistency with the bid that you put together and the number of uh, uh additional work that you have afterwards like we see this a lot with uh, utility relocations that like okay we we surprisingly discovered this uh this utility now right away and now we got to move it and now there's uh, uh now there's another change order that we put in place and then the change orders start to pile up and then eventually the project the owner isn't happy, right? Because you had this uh, this contract to bid for for a certain number, right? But the the reality turned into something completely different. Well, certainly that that happens. Um, you know, when it's uh, when it's hard bid, and they give you the information, you know, it's it's great for a contractor when you run into something that's not there that yeah um, that wasn't on the plans or. Uh, if, if it's there and it's not noted or whatever the case may be, it's a change condition. You know, that, that's great. That's how a lot of these people that are in that 5% market can survive is because of the change orders. Now, when you get in design build work, you know, an owner really likes that because now I can lean on the contractor. Hey, look, you take all the risk. We're going to outline what the right away is and what the general scope of work is going to be. You need to figure it out from point A to point B with, you knowing and having knowledge of the intention of what the end result purpose of this project is. So even if you've got some schematic drawings or you've got some ideas of what they're trying to do, um, if it's different from that, it's still, the risk is all on the contractor. Now, again, you can enter in with your, your engineer. When you're, when you're employed with the engineer on a design build, you now become symbiotic in a relationship because typically like in a, a competitive bid market, engineers and contractors don't like each other. They just butt heads. And um, you know, we think they don't know anything, and they think we don't know anything. So it's great because we're all on, on equal ground. We, we kind of hate each other. But in a design build, we have to put aside our differences and, and come together and, and figure out how to uh, form this symbiotic relationship because you're both going to live and die by your expertise. So now, now you've got to figure out how to make friends and, and get the job done. The owner likes that because he's like, look, guys, I've, I've rewarded the project to you. I know it's going to cost, you know, a billion dollars. That's all you're going to get. So when you do run into something, it, it's, it's up to you. Sure. Unless, of course, you know, you negotiate some force majeure in your contract that, okay, look, this is definitely an act of God, something nobody even on the design team or on the contracting side could have figured out. And the owner, you know, good owners will accommodate for that. But by and large, the owner's risk is it's done. The only risk they're taking on is do they have the budget? Do they have the billion dollars that they can pay out? Knowing that once that last check is written, they're done. So it, it's great for them. I, the, you know, what, what comes to mind is why are we only seeing this with these mega projects? Like why are we having design build for the smaller projects? Like if this is if the system works right, I think that in TechStart it's uh, what five to six design builds in two years, something like that. Uh, and I think uh, like when we look at the Caltrans, I'm not so uh, educated on the numbers, but I think like when you look historically, it's more or less the same. Uh, and I'm wondering like why like we have these alternative delivery methods. Why aren't we implementing more of them? It's it's money because you on the front end. If you've got these smaller projects where they're, they're pretty easy conceptually to put on paper and, and go out and do or at least get a get a price on them, 
an owner is not going to want to to hire an engineer. Engineers are notorious for milking the clock. They'll definitely sit on something, and it's almost like they all collude and and they uh, oh dare I say that word? Yeah. They'll uh, call each other and say, hey, you know this this is basically going to be our scheduled values for for design costs. I mean, I've seen some exorbitant design costs for what? Um, and then, you know, they could turn it around and they could say, well, you know, you contractors, I mean, you know, you nickel and dime for everything. I mean, I see both sides, but owners, owners see both sides too. They're looking at us. It's almost like a a tennis game going on looking at both sides and just, it's almost like a ball going over the net back and forth. So if it's something that an owner can figure out, they'll use their internal resources, get the right of way acquisition, put it on paper, get it out, get it bid. They can save a lot of money on the front end. And that's why they don't have these smaller projects, especially when they have all the information. Uh, soup the nuts. They can just they can get it out there, and it's cheaper. Again, trying to protect the taxpayer. On the other hand, when it's a complex job, and their in-house resources can't handle it, that's when they'll get other people involved, and they know they're going to have to have the budget to do that. Because once you get another engineer, a third-party engineer on board, it's it's going to cost a lot of money. So you got to be very selective with that, and it's 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 budget driven for sure. Yeah, you know, but when I uh, when we talk to to engineers, it's you know it's not like they they have it they have it easy. Right? Like a good engineer will go out into the into the field and like do some field investigation. Like you said, look at look at what the, not in a two dimensional uh, view, so to speak, but. A lot of times they don't get all the information and they need to go gather it, especially when we're talking about asbits and utility reports. Like they, uh, a lot of times, you know, yeah, if I needed to drive six hours to get that, uh, that record for some, uh, for some, I don't know, godforsaken basement in the, in the outskirts of a town that no one's ever heard of. And like we've heard the, these stories. Uh, and then they need to, design off of this as built that's been like hasn't been uh, like may have been changed or hasn't been changed in the last 30 years right and like do they have they found the most recent as built of that area they never know right no well and i think too a lot of engineering firms are starting to hire contractors who have actually done the work in the past engineers were they're very um I don't know it's like a secret society. They they definitely want to keep everything in a vacuum. And if you're not an engineer, you're not even going to be considered. You know, you got to have a PE stamp in order to get on their team. I think they're starting to see the reality that yeah, you know, um, there's this there's knowledge and there's wisdom, and it's it's the contractors. You know, the guys that you would think that um, you know just because they don't have a degree doesn't mean you know they're not smart. Those are the ones that if, if I had my druthers, I'd rather be with the, the contractors because I'm not going to get killed when, with the contractor. When I'm with an engineer, you're going to get you killed on a job site because yeah. he just doesn't know. Yeah. So there's a lot of expertise that are coming from the field, from contracting, that can help designers get that information that they need. Now, a lot of it can be local knowledge. A lot of it can be just simply going out there and doing a, a bunch of exploratory work, potholing. Uh, back truck work, that type of thing. Um, pulling lids off of manholes and inlets. You know, th- those things, you can connect the dots that way. I, I know that there are far more sophistic- sophisticated methods to-, to get from point A to point B, but I think designers and design firms are looking to hire contractors because they're starting to see that there's some value in their expertise, whether it's from uh, having local experience or just knowing how to connect those dots that a typical engineer wouldn't know how to do or wouldn't even know where to start. So, um, yeah, for sure, the industry is, is starving for more high-tech methods. I know that as-builts are very fallible. We get lazy when you know we sign off on a project. Typically, when you're delivering as-builts on a completed project, it's at the very end, obviously. You're, you're constantly doing these changes throughout the project. But to get it through the submittal process, you know, the first few submittals are great. They're pretty accurate. But when you drag on a project two, three, four years, I mean, I've been there. I've been a field engineer. I mean, you're just, you're submitting. If it's close, fine. If it's not, who cares? You know, that's, that's just keeping it real. And so what happens is it starts extrapolating into that, that error zone where 
you know, you could call for a utility dig and, um, you know, utility alert, and they go out there and they mark it. And they, let's say, for example, they give you a two or a five foot offset from center line. I mean, I've been on jobs that wasn't even close. It wasn't even within that. And again, those are, those are great change order opportunities for a contractor. But again, the owner's not looking to honor all these change orders. When they hand it off to an engineer, they want them to have the data, take the risk, so that the contractor's not coming back and them wanting more money. So th- those are the things. I mean, it's kind of like, you know, if you're doing a project at home, you know, it, it could be something as simple as, as a ceiling fan. I, I know that the scope of work is going to be, hey, hang the ceiling fan up on the ceiling and, and make sure it works from a switch. But there could be a lot of things in between there when you're starting to do that that you didn't see that that becomes a, a complex project. You know, well, let's say that the uh, the wiring wasn't right. Now that's got to be fixed or is a bad switch or is a three-way switch and it doesn't work. The pole's off or whatever. Um, if I'm paying somebody to do that, I, I don't want to get charged extra for changing out a scope. I just, the scope of work was to put in the ceiling fan. So yeah. as an owner or as somebody I'm hiring to put in a ceiling fan, I'm, I'm shocked if somebody comes back, if, if the guy I hired comes back and he wants double the price to put up the ceiling fan because of all this other stuff, whether it's legitimized or not. So that's why an owner is like, look, I, I just want to make sure you guys have the right data, you know what you're doing, and then I'm not writing checks after the fact. Once that money's gone, I'm moving on to the next project. I've got buckets of money for other projects and I'm not going to dip into. So that's really the challenge. And that's why you get all this adverse relationships out in the field because the owner's mad at the engineer, the engineer's mad at the contractor, and the contractor's mad at everybody. So, again, getting the right data is very important. And, you know, it doesn't seem like it's important on the front end because you're so excited just to, to bid a job and have the opportunity to go out and perform. But on the back end is where you wish that you had better data because either the contractor's losing money, he's an LD's, or the, the engineer, he's he's like a lawyer and he can't bill any more hours because he's he's been he's been hosing the owner from day one. And then the owner's just like, Man, I'm going broke and I gotta go to the city council and beg for more money. So you can see that everybody's friends at the beginning of the project and at the end it's it's pretty rough. And that's why hence that was the invention of partnering, you know, twenty, twenty five years ago, because they wanted to prevent all this back end arbitration and uh, try to, you know, get it rectified in the front end so everybody's, um, you know, happy and part of a family on the front end. And hopefully you can you can get to the end of the project without a divorce. Well, it's, uh, you know, it sounds like on one hand, um, all the stakeholders in the project are adversarial. And on the other hand, everyone's making a buck out of this, except for the taxpayers. Uh, yeah, for sure. I mean, you know, I'm a taxpayer, and when I'm out there and and I'm seeing how much money it takes to do these projects or watching, you know, a lot of these projects go over budget. I mean, I've been on both sides. I've seen projects just kill it, and make a ton of money, and I've seen projects just bleed. I mean, you can go on YouTube, and there's actually a clip of um, there's about ten mega projects that didn't do so well. Uh, the Bay Bridge in uh, the Bay Area is is a great example. I think that went, uh, it, it doubled in budget. Wow. And a lot of those, the, you know, part of the reasoning was, you know, design and and um, obstructions, things that, you know, the alignment was off. It could have been rectified in design. It could have been rectified prior to even bringing the designer over. You know, the owner could have done a better job at figuring out what their surroundings were before they even picked that particular alignment to put that bridge in. So, you know, it's kind of like, uh, you know, you make a mistake, you're on the wrong trajectory. It could be a half a degree off. But by the time that you get a thousand miles down the road, you're yeah. 30 degrees off. I mean, you're, yeah. you're messed up. So, um, yeah, there's, there's a lot of that going on. But I, I, I've seen it both ways. And, and I know that, uh, again, I try every time that I get involved in a, in a public works project to be cognizant of, of taxpayer dollars because I'm writing the check, too. And we owe it to be better stewards of our own money. And I guarantee you, if you if you own the company, you would you would never 
um, you'd never behave the way that you do if you didn't if you didn't have that context, you didn't have that perspective. You know, if you just thought that ah, I don't own it, so I'm just going to do whatever I want to do. Once you start, you know, branching out on your own and, and trying to do it on your own, you start to respect what an owner does and the risk that they take. And it can be an owner of utility, it can be an owner of a construction company, and it can be an owner of a design firm. I mean, I my hat's off to those people because I tried too. You can burn through a lot of money trying to get off the ground. You take a lot of risk. So, you know, I, I get it. You know, it, it's it's good to make a profit. We all want to make a dollar. But at the same token, it's about relationships. I mean, you can sell your soul for one project. Contractors do it all the time just to make a name so that they can look impressive on the bottom line for one job and maybe get a bonus. Yeah. But how many relationships how many relationships have you screwed up in the process? And people remember you. It's a very small world in construction. And I tell people, look, I'm not gonna sell my soul on this one job. I'm gonna be around for twenty years. Because you always remember the bad things about people and about projects. You never remember the good things. So I, that's one of the things that keeps me cognizant of saving money, being cognizant of money being a, a good steward of money, and it doesn't matter where I'm at in that food chain and, and who my, my client is, whether it's an owner, designer, or a contractor. Well, uh, you know, I wish that uh, that more people, more stakeholders in the industry would uh, uh, feel like that. I think that, like you said before, uh, it's like a, we're an industry of frenemies. Like on one hand, we need to, we must be able to work with each other. But on the other hand, uh, there's a lot of finger pointing, which I think is a lot of what you just described. Yeah, and I think that's what makes um, what I do now so much more valuable. Because, um, you know, I, I take the emotion out of the, out of the projects, but it, it really helps me to maintain objectivity. You know, when you're working for a company, you become very subjective it's all about you. You, you get kind of lost in the weeds because you're just thinking, I want the benefits and I want to survive and I need the paycheck, et cetera, et cetera. But uh, when you when you own your own company and, and you consult to a lot of these clients, you do a good job. Number one, it's just pride of ownership. That's what you should be doing anyway. But the you know your client is going to recognize that too. They know that there's a certain level of integrity. When you're an employee, I'm not saying you don't have integrity. But you can, that gets kind of grayed up and kind of smeared in the, into the mass of the corporation. Um, it's more interest at stake. Well, I think there's a lot of people that are internally sabotaging, you know, your environment and your career because there's this hierarchy that people are constantly aware of. Yeah. So, like you said, frenemies, <laughs> you know, the, the politics and the, and the, the drama in a corporation, you know, just the, the gossip and, and all the subplots. Um, you know, yeah, there are a lot of people that it, it's fun to them when they get into that. I guess it, it makes time pass. I don't know. But I'm more of a person that has a passion for construction, and I want people to succeed. The only way they're going to succeed is to get from point A to point B as quick as possible and, you know, to be aware, again, of, of uh, you know, the budgets, whether it's the budget to estimate, the budget to um, perform the work, to construct the work, uh, to maintain the work, you know, all those things. And if you don't, if you don't have that, that objective knowledge, that well-rounded knowledge, you get very myopic in just where you're at, what's your seat. I mean, you, you want to be good at what you do, but at the same token, you want people around you to be good as well, because you're only as good as the weakest link. And for us here at Jones Industrial, um, that's really you know, how we carry ourselves, because I'm not going to get any phone calls. If the client's not happy with my work, I'm not going to get a phone call. And it can be stuff that I've been doing for 28 years, just grinding through a takeoff. I'm a grinder. I actually enjoy it because I know nobody else is going to want to do it. And when they do it, especially in utility work, you get so burned out, you know, you'll start taking shortcuts or you'll start you know, slacking off a little bit and not providing the detail that, that you need to give to a customer. It's a very competitive world. The only way that you can get a competitive advantage is you have the right data. You've got to be detailed. You can't just, 
you know, get in a hurry and make some gross assumptions and just whitewash it and get through it. Um, some of the best jobs are the ones that I really grind into it and, and get in the details so the customer knows exactly what they're getting into, especially when you don't have all the accurate data when it comes to underground infrastructure work. And if you can provide all that information to, you know, a contractor, help them in the bid process, they can get an advantage over their competitor because they've got the data. What they do with the data is up to them. I take the emotion out of it. Here's the data. You guys run with it or not run with it, but I guarantee you they're going to call me back because if they need to go to the, the next level of, of detail, they're going to call me. They're going to call our, our team. And uh, that's, that's what I like about it because there's not a lot of people that, can still do this for as long as I have and not get burned out. They they typically will want to go to a vice president level where they can kind of chill and delegate and just talk a lot. And uh, outside of this podcast, I don't like to really hear myself talk. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think that uh, you know we've heard the term guesstimate. Have you heard that uh, that being used? Oh yeah. So- and I think I, I, I sometimes can't believe when I, when I hear it being used. Like, like, and we hear this, like, and these are not small projects. You know, like, yeah, we, we made this, uh, we, we guesstimated this part of the design. Like, what, what does that mean? What does that mean? Yeah, well, I mean, that, that's part of your, um, you know, your risk assessment. I mean, you can have a conversation with, you know, a, a group of people at a restaurant at, at the table and say, well, how, how much do you think this is going to cost me? Well, that's going to run you about $150,000, um, you know, a linear foot. Let's say it's a, a people move a project or something. You know, there, there's metrics that you can use where you're like, eh, it's 150. And they're like, yeah. oh, okay, well, that that's great from 60,000 feet. But, you know, if, if it's my money, I'm the owner of the company and I'm taking the risk, I don't want to bid anything at 60,000 feet, even if it's conceptual. I mean, it's good, again, it's good to have a conversation about it, but for people just to operate kind of on a green sheet mentality where you just, ah, eh, you know, we've done this in the past for, you know, X amount of dollars per foot or per yard or whatever the case may be, and let's just run it on a spreadsheet, you know, put some overhead and profit on it and turn it in, we're good to go. You know, we've, we've been doing this for 20 years. And, and I got to tell you that with the volatility of the markets in the last two years, that's out the window. You can't do that anymore. So for people to say, yeah, we kind of guesstimated on it. We, we gave it a wag. That works in only specific instances. But again, you've got to mitigate your risk. I'm never going to, um, you know, volunteer a wag or a, a guess to my client because I don't want them looking at me like, hey, it's, it's your fault. You know, what I've got error and emissions insurance or not, that's that's not relevant. What's relevant is if as a consultant, do I advise my clients to, to do that and then put their money at risk like that? Absolutely not. So for an estimating department to do it, I hope they're just being facetious and joking, but today you can't do that. I mean, especially with the materials, the way they are, supply chain issues, you know, things have gone up. I've had to change a lot of my own metrics that I relied on. So my conversations have changed with owners. You know, I, I can't just pull a rabbit out of a hat with a bunch of numbers that I've, I've had and I've been using for the past 20 years. So, yeah, those things, I mean, you know, it, it's nice in conversation, but in conversation only. When, when the rubber hits the road and somebody's got to back it up, I think you're starting to see more of a demand for this detail. And yeah, that's what gives me the job security and our team job security. So we're loving it here. I think, uh, no, I think we're seeing a lot of uh, a lot of this on the front end because there's just a lack of data at that point. And creating data at the, the early stages of design is, uh, is expensive. Like going back into utilities, like when you're 18 months away from the excavator on site, you're not uh, going to be inclined in investing six figures in a field investigation crew to go out into uh, into the field because you don't even know yet if the project is going to happen. So you're only going to make that investment when you get towards uh, towards construction, which creates, again, a lack of data and kind of 
you know, I'm not, I'm not uh, blaming the, the engineers. I'm saying, look, this is a tough situation that they need to deal with. They need to deal with a lack of where they're at in the project. Yeah, and um, I think that, uh, you know, there are ways to, you know, to mitigate that. Everything's about cash flow, obviously. So to your point, you just can't, you know, spend a, money on, a ton of money on the front end. But, you know, if, if you're in the process of bidding work, you can identify a lot of potential on the front end that would, you know, substantiate going out and spending some money to do your investigations to, you know, maybe buy equipment or buy a software that can that can be helpful in in forecasting what your you know what your potential change orders are going to be what are your windfalls going to be you know those those things are case by case they're going to be job specific so yes i mean i i think that everybody's cognizant especially on the front end you just don't want to start you know writing checks especially if you know it's something that uh, i mean obviously you don't want to do that you don't even have the job. You want to wait until the ink's dried and you've got a job. But even yeah. times when you do have a job, you know, you've got to you got to adhere to your schedule and you know, stick to your schedule, have schedule discipline. And two, I think you have to evaluate, you know, your 80-20 rule is just what's moving the needle? What's that 80% that's gonna really ding me if I don't pay attention to it? I'm not saying yeah. that 20% is yeah. not important, but that's your starting point. Because sometimes your twenty your twenty percent can get critical, and almost flip flop on you if, if you go to sleep on it. So, yeah, yeah not to let the twenty percent fall through the cracks, but you know you have to identify that big chunk, that big nut that's going to hit you hard, and how you're going to attack it all the way through the job, whether it's front end and the middle on the back end. Um, obviously, you're you're trying to put yourself in a strategic situation where you can, you know, you want to overbill on the front end. And that way, you know, you can you can be your own bank and play with house money, that type of thing. Probably not telling you anything you, are, you don't already know. Uh, Sid, uh, towards the end of the, our episode, we normally ask two questions. So I'll start with uh, the first one. What's, uh, what's one piece of advice you'd give to estimators going into uh, complex infrastructure projects? Uh, I would say uh, detail. Um, the more detail, the better. And I think that, you know, if you think that the people you're working for or the, the client, your, your employer is not looking for detail, you're, you're fooling yourself. Uh, more information is better than, than not enough. Just getting by is not going to cut it. I know that utility work, infrastructure work, buried utilities, it's not very sexy. It's buried. You don't get to see it. But when you put the detail into it, it can have everything to do with the success of everything that you can see. So I would say with uh, my advice for that is just is more detail. Uh, go the extra mile. Um, again, I know it's, it, it's a grind, but it's well worth it. And I think that that's going to benefit everybody in the loop from the owner to the contractor to the engineer uh, to yourself. Um, because when somebody's going to ask the question sooner or later, you got to have the answer. Yeah. Second uh, question. I'm putting you on the spot for a second. Who do you think should be our next guest on the podcast? Who should be your next guest? Next guest. Oh my! Um, somebody that I would know, or somebody that somebody I would recommend to you that you know. Uh, preferably like, and, uh, and most importantly <laughs> is that, uh, you think, uh, you think is a professional that, uh, needs to share their point of view. Uh, you know, I, I always like to yield to, to my business partner. Um, you know, I'm kind of biased that way because we got into, into business together because we, we have, um, we share the same values. We're like-minded in the detail approach. Um, you want me to, to drop his name? Is that what you're looking for, David? Absolutely. <laughs> no, my, my business partner is, is Todd Jackson, and uh, he has his own consulting company, but we joint venture uh, as part of Jones Industrial Group. We have a, a subsidiary, JTW Enterprises, and Todd Jackson is actually the owner of Waterloo Preconstruction Services. 
and uh, you know he's again you're you're probably gonna hear a lot of the same mantra that I have from him, which is which is good because that's why when you get two people, two heads are better than one, and uh, you've got to seek these people out that have that same level of integrity because you can and we've all worked with people that you know when they say something that you know it sounds good, it sounds like something that you want to hear. But what you're looking for is is the action part. Are the actions what I want to see? Yep. And so if you can find somebody, then it's going to be rare. You know, I, I've been in the business for, you know, again, close to 30 years, just on the professional standpoint. I've been in the field prior to that. But to find, it's taken that long to find somebody that you would take on mutually shared risk. And even what we do as, as consultants, I and mean, we're sharing risk because, Again, you're only as good as the weakest link. If the two of you are are right there together, I mean, you could be a juggernaut, especially in this market that we're in right now. And there is a shortage. You know, my wife for many years was an employment recruiter. And uh, trust me, I've seen some resumes. I've seen a lot of them. She's seen a lot of them. I've seen what's out there. I see what the demand is from a lot of these companies. Even at Jones Industrial, we she still recruits for us. And uh, I just know that uh, there's there's a demand for quality that's just not there in this market. So when you can hook up with people that are like-minded, um, yeah, for sure. He, he's definitely a recommendation for uh, for a conversation. Uh, with so we'll have to take that offline and then make that happen. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Sid, thank you so much. Uh, this, was, this was a very informative uh, episode. I think our audience got a lot of value out of it. Um, I appreciate it. My pleasure, David. Thank you for having me. Looking forward to talking real soon. Sure thing.